I'm excited about the opportunity to look at these Ten Commitments because these are critical for our understanding. We're on this little mini-series out of the book of Matthew on a little mini uh, detour, if you will, from our study of Matthew concerning the local church and talking about specifically, of course, Grace Church. What does it stand for? Where is it going? Why is it here? Um, Who's in charge? All those issues are important for us as a ministry, and we're coming up next Sunday marks the one-year anniversary of Grace Church of the Valley. We will have had one year's worth of Sunday meetings as of September 7th. We started on September 9th, but this next week is the one-year week, and that's hard to believe. Um, First of all, it's hard to believe because there were two and a half years of Bible studies before there was ever a Grace Church service. So we're actually coming up on almost four years of ministry, with many of you being a part of this from the earliest days in the Bible study. And so it just seemed appropriate, and the Lord really burdened my own thinking, to rehash and to rehearse and to go back and review those elements that are right at the core of what we're doing. They're right at the foundation level. They're the very centerpiece of why we're here. The first one is, no doubt, the head of this church, and he is the centerpiece He is the preeminent one. His name is Jesus Christ. And if you don't know him, I trust even through our time today, you will be introduced to the person and the work and the majesty of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of sinners who repent and believe. He is the head. And we started our study on this little mini detour. We started with him. And we spent a whole Sunday just talking about Christ and what he means to Grace Church of the Valley. Today... We're going to continue what we started last week talking about the guts of grace. We looked at the head, now we're in the guts. The guts just being the philosophy of ministry. What, what thought process drives us? What commitments have we made, biblically speaking, for the sake of this ministry? And that's where we'll spend our time today. And then next Sunday we'll look at the body of the church. What is the body of Grace Church? Well, it starts with its leadership and it fans out into its entire membership and So the next two Sundays, next week, we'll look at the leadership of Grace Church and what we believe the scriptures tell us about leadership. We'll do a little overview today, but just briefly. And then the following week, we'll look at what a member is in a local church and what Grace Church looks like from a membership's or a member's point of view, from a membership perspective. And that will conclude, as far as I know, Lord willing, that will conclude our little mini-series unless there is such clamoring for clarity and uh, and desperate pleas for more information than we might consider that. But otherwise, we're going to get back into Matthew and continue on in Matthew chapter 7. All of this really comes from a desire on our parts as the leadership of the ministry here. It comes from a desire for us to be intentional about what we do. Um, I would say at the top of the list for us as kind of a core value as servants of Christ, it would be to be intentional about what we're doing. That is to know what Christ commands us, to know what he expects of us, and then to intentionally plan, carefully plan to actually live that out in the life of this local assembly. That's what we're all about. That's what we desire. We desire for you to understand what Christ expects of you as his church. We, we desire for our own leadership team to understand the expectations that our Christ, the head of this church, has on them, on us, and we desire to then see that fleshed out 
in a very purposeful, intentional way. We often think of ministry, I think, somewhat haphazardly, that it just happens. We just teach the Bible and everything else just happens. Well, there are certain things that we must be intentional about. We must set ourselves on a course, a direction, so that God can do what He desires to do through this ministry and grant whatever success He desires to grant as His Word is carefully taught and then lived by His people. We're, we're so concerned about intentionality that we're, we even were intentional with the name of our church, of our local expression of the universal church of Jesus Christ. We actually thought about the name. We thought about it probably longer and harder than you could ever believe. <laughs> All right? And it actually means something. And I thought it would be an interesting way to start our time, just to let you know, give you a little insight into the name Grace Church of the Valley. I mean, we actually thought through that, believe it or not. We call our church, our local assembly, we call it Grace because we are gathered solely upon the basis of God's unmerited favor to us. So there's nothing we would rather blast with our name. There's nothing we would rather put in flashing lights than grace. We are consumed, we are overwhelmed, we are driven by, we cannot get over the grace of God. We are sinners, and He saved us. That's grace. There's nothing sweeter than grace. There's nothing more foundational to us as God's people than grace. And so we couldn't think of a better word. We could have come up with any number of descriptive terms, and surely there are myriad of names that could have been used. Secondly, we call this local assembly a church because that's exactly what we desire and what we are as we gather together. Not just are we consumed with grace, but we are a church. We are the special gathering of God's people, Christ's body on this earth. We're not a club, we're not a social sphere. We are gathering as His body. We are Grace Church. And then the last little phrase, of the valley, was just as intentional because we are a local church which is committed to reaching our little part, our little part of the San Joaquin Valley. We have a vision to reach our community, which is broader than just the town we meet in. We are committed to the valley for Jesus Christ and for strengthening the believer's that live here. We have a valley vision at Grace Church. And many of you are testimonies to that. You're from hither and yon in this little corner of the valley. I think it's funny that we call this the valley as if our section is the valley. Everywhere else is something else, but we are the valley and that is our consuming passion to get the word of the gospel to those who live within our community first and then to take it to the ends of the earth, as well as a commitment to reaching God's people here with the sound teaching of His Word. So we're intentional. We want to be intentional. We were intentional about this name, Grace Church of the Valley. And these principles that we've been studying, these ten pillars of our philosophy, are a further attempt on our parts to to put guardrails around our thinking so that we are intentional with every decision we make. From the most minute to the grandest scale, we want the decisions for the ministry of Grace Church of the Valley to be guarded by God's Word, to be guarded by God's priorities. And so we've come to these ten 
as a basis for us to relate to what the New Testament and what all of Scripture reveals to us that our God demands of us. If you weren't with us last week, we started by looking at the first four of our commitments, and you have them now on your sheet. And if you need to hold them way far away or anything like that, that's fine. You can see them there. If not, if you can't see them, no matter where you hold them, then just listen and I'll read them to you. Number one, we are committed to God and to His authoritative Word. Number two, we're committed to God-centered worship, which flows out of that commitment to Him and to His Word. We want to make much of God when we come together for worship. We're committed to proclaiming Jesus as Lord and Savior to the full gospel presentation, the hard sayings of Jesus, as well as the glorious good news that He offers forgiveness to any and all who will believe. And then, subsequently, we are committed to making disciples locally and globally through the message of the good news of Jesus Christ. Those were the first four, and that's all the further we got. This week we're going to conclude with the final six. And if you've been with us for any amount of time, me doing six things is just going to be uh, a sight to behold. I've been praying, I even talked to my wife about this last night, I've been praying that God would keep me centered on my task this morning because I love each of these six commitments and they mean a lot to my own heart and it is easy for us to get derailed on any one of them, but that's not our goal. Our goal is to see them and to understand them and to know as much as we can from the short time that we have together to examine them. So let's jump right in and let's look at these because these are critical. These are the guiding lights, if you will. These are the pillars that hold up the philosophy of ministry here at Grace Church of the Valley. Number five, you'll see on your sheet, we are committed to grace-motivated spiritual growth. We are committed to grace-motivated spiritual growth. Those words have been carefully chosen, especially the word motivated. We are concerned here at Grace Church that there is a kind of quote-unquote spiritual growth that is uninformed and mismotivated, if you will, which leads us away from a proper relationship to the God we serve. There is a kind of spiritual growth or spiritual maturity or so-called spiritual maturity, that can actually lead us away from the thriving relationship that God intends for us to have with Him through Christ. You'll see the little blurb there says, Living a grace-motivated life is not a liberty that allows a believer to choose a lifestyle independent of the Scriptures. Rather, it is the discipline that increasingly teaches a believer to say no to ungodliness and to hunger for righteousness. While the presence of sin will not be absent until we reach heaven, followers of Christ can be confident that if they confess their sin, God is faithful to forgive and restore the parental relationship between Him and His chosen ones, His elect ones. We are committed to re-informing your thinking on a continual basis, on renewing our own minds on a continual basis, that it is grace that is to motivate our obedience. Now, there are a number of counterfeit motivations for your obedience. Probably top of the list is guilt. A guilt-motivated obedience. Maybe you're battling with that even today. You're here because you felt guilty that you weren't here last week. And so when you were deciding what was going to take place this weekend, you thought, well, I better go gather with the believers because I didn't do it last week and I feel bad about it, so I'm going to go 
and spend time with the believers at Grace Church. Well, I'm glad you're here, but that's not the appropriate motivation that should drive us to gather together. Guilt is one possible motivation. Fear is another possible motivation. Maybe you're of the mindset that if I don't gather with the believers, God will then make my truck break. Or something will happen. And so the weeks that you're not here, gathered with us to worship Christ, and things go wrong, you tend to think, I knew it. I knew it. So when Sunday rolls around, you have that nagging fear, I better go do this, because if I don't, God's going to get me. That's a misinformed motivation. And as much as those are well-intentioned, and, I, and I've experienced all of those, by the way, and I think we all battle with those at different levels, at different times, with different decisions. Those are not to be the driving, consuming motivations for our growth. We are to be driven by our awareness of and our appreciation for God's grace. That's why we have a relationship with Christ because He has been gracious to us. That is the basis of His continued, continued activity with us. It is His gracious activity. So we are consumed with a grace motivated because God has worked in me. I desire to grow. I am motivated by the grace I have already experienced. I am motivated by the grace that I am now experiencing. And I am motivated by the confidence I have in future grace that God has promised to me. I grow because I am motivated by grace. We see this in our scriptures. This picture is painted for us. One of the passages that we've just been studying actually in our adult Sunday school class is in Galatians chapter 3. There was a group of believers a long time ago that got confused about this. And their spiritual growth became an issue where Paul, the Apostle Paul, had to step in and help inform their thinking. In Galatians chapter 3, He says, oh, foolish Galatians. He calls this group of believers fools. Why would he say such a harsh thing? Well, verse 3 goes on to explain it. Who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. That is, you received the gospel. You saw the gospel in all of its truth, in all of its fullness, right before your eyes, as it were. You saw it, and now someone has, has bewitched you. Someone tricked you. Look at verse 2. Paul asked this question. Let me ask only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And the obvious rhetorical question, the answer is, hearing by faith. That's how they came to Christ. Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplied the Spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? And obviously the answer is by hearing with faith. Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Notice what verse 3 gives us as the center of that whole argument. Are you then, Galatians, so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Now understand what the problem was here. It was a mismotivated and misinformed spiritual growth. They were motivated by the idea that they could, in their own effort, in their own working out, they could somehow produce within themselves spiritual fruit. They could bring growth. So maybe you're motivated not by guilt or not by fear, but maybe you battle with motivation that comes from your independent spirit, that you, in fact, can do it yourself. All of that must come back to this emphasis, number five commitment, we are committed to grace-motivated, grace-saturated 
spiritual growth. Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 12, 2. We read that this morning, actually, in adult Sunday school. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12, one of my favorite texts because it paints for us the mysterious picture of our spiritual growth. Therefore, my beloved, my beloved, Paul says, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That is, continue on in your obedience, working out, putting the expression of your salvation on display. Verse 13, for it is God who works in you, both to do and both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So we are to be active in our growth. We are to be intentional, if you will, in our growth. And yet we are doing all of that because God is graciously working in us. Both to want to do what He wants us to do and to actually do what He wants us to do. Grace Church is committed to grace-motivated spiritual growth. We are against a legalistic approach, a rules-based system of growth. And we are opposed because our scriptures are opposed to a license-based spiritual growth that throws away the clear teaching of scripture to live in any way. Right motives for the right growth that God intends for his people is our goal here at Grace Church. That is a commitment that drives our ministry. So is commitment number six. We are not only committed to grace-motivated spiritual growth, but we are committed to dependent expectant prayer. We are committed to dependent, expectant prayer. Prayer is the very lifeblood of the church. It is the believer's breath of dependence. It's like breathing for the believer to pray. Every aspect of ministry must be saturated with humble surrender and confident intercession. Whether secret or public, whether personal or corporate, that is collective, Prayer must be the hallmark of the local church. Brothers and sisters, there is no place where we sense more universal conviction than when we talk about our prayer lives. Because as 21st century believers, we struggle with our independence. We struggle with our sense of ease and comfort. Some of you this week have been torn out of that comfort zone. You've been torn away from what naturally sets in with our sin and our culture, what naturally sets in is I'm okay, life's okay, I'm in control, everything's fine. And nothing does damage to that faulty thinking like trials. And when trial comes, the natural response of your heart flows out, doesn't it? What happens when trial comes? What happens when you're made aware again that you cannot, you cannot control the circumstances that are around you? You cannot change hearts. You cannot change lives. Only God can do that work. And when you're you're presented with the facts, your heart naturally cries out in prayer. Doesn't it? We know. We know who the Sovereign One is. We know who holds time in His hands. We know whose plan is being worked out. And we come running before Him in dependent, that is submitted, and expectant, faith-based prayer. We look forward to Him working. That must be the commitment of our ministry. Whether we are experiencing the blessings of God in times of comfort and ease, we ought to be aware like never before that He is working and that we must come before Him dependently and expectantly as well as in times of trial. 
Let me show you a couple passages that kind of give us a little window into this, this prayer life that encompasses the church. Go to the book of Acts with me, if you would. Let's go to the very first chapter of Acts. Such a fascinating book of history and transition. Christ is ascended in chapter 1, and now Luke begins to record for Theophilus, his friend. He begins to record the working of the Holy Spirit now in God's people. The new covenant has come. Christ has been sacrificed. The resurrection has taken place. Eternal life has been secured, and now Christ has risen. The Spirit comes in Acts chapter 2, and in Acts chapter 1, we already get a picture of what will make up the practice of those who follow Christ, of those who follow after him as Christians, as they'll later be called in the book of Acts for the first time. Look at verse 13 of chapter 1. Actually, verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. And here we find what naturally happens for the believer. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In Acts chapter 1 you see the first natural response of those who would follow Christ in his absence. This practice would continue in chapter 2 when the believers gathered after Pentecost and were gathered to the local assembly of Jerusalem, they were getting together, breaking bread, enjoying the apostolic teaching, and they were praying. This is part and parcel to what it is to be a Christian. I think we've gone so far from a commitment and understanding that Christians pray. They don't pray out of guilt. They don't pray out of fear. They don't pray because God's the genie in the bottle. They don't pray to win the lottery. They pray with dependence and expectation, bringing their concerns, their requests before their Heavenly Father because He has graciously rescued them, set them apart for His own name's sake. And they confess that and they live differently because of it. We are committed here at Grace to dependent, expectant prayer. We will encourage, we will exemplify prayer on every level of the church's life. Corporate worship must include corporate prayer, public prayer in services, private prayer in gatherings, Sunday school, grace groups. These are all venues for us to pray together. This must be a commitment. It is a non-negotiable of Grace Church of the Valley. We are committed to prayer. We are committed to grace-motivated spiritual growth. Seventh, then, we come to this seventh commitment. We are committed to a plurality of servant leaders. We are committed to a plurality, that is, multiple servant leaders, as God's expectation for the local assembly, for the local church. This is what we're going to study next week, but let me just read to you our little blurb describing this commitment. Multiple qualified elders who respect and value one another and who serve God's people in humility must lead the church. The church must diligently prepare future leaders who are confidently committed to God's truth and who are able with precision and skill to lead others into that truth. 
on Sunday evenings, we have spent our year studying the pastoral epistles. The pastoral epistles are heavy laden with these instructions. The really the core of what we're saying here, this commitment flows out of those pastoral epistles. In fact, you see there that 1 Timothy chapter 3 is the starting place for this understanding. 1 Timothy chapter 3 verses 1 through 7 describe the qualities of those leaders. Titus 1, 5 to 9 also speaks to the quality of the plurality of elders or pastors. Your Bible continues to give information. Acts chapter 20 is probably one of the most common passages in my own reading. Acts chapter 20, Paul speaks to the elders of the church at Ephesus about their job. 1 Peter 5, if you have your Bible open, you can turn to 1 Peter 5. It's probably the most precious passage and should mean much to you. Peter says, this is the Apostle Peter, says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. We are committed to a plurality of servant leaders. What does that mean? What does that mean for you? That just means we're not a congregational church. Maybe you've been a part of a congregational church. We are not one of those. We believe that Scripture clearly informs us that the church is to be led by shepherds. The sheep are to be led by shepherds, under shepherds, who exist under the delegated leadership of the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. And so we are committed to a pastorally led church. Not at all set apart from these standards found in 1 Peter chapter 5. Not domineering, not dominating the flock, but being examples for the flock. Not under compulsion or duty, but willingly because we love you. This is our commitment. We will use the term here because of the shepherding and the sheep concept and because of clarity. We really we want you to understand our desire. We thought about even saying shepherds, but we're going to use the term pastors. We are committed to a pastoral plurality, a pastoral team that gives oversight and direction and shepherding to the flock. That will be fleshed out more as the days go by and as this year comes to a conclusion and we start to move into the expression of that that will be seen in its maturity. But I want you to know, at least for now, and we'll get back to this next Sunday, that we're committed to a plurality of servant leaders, a plural pastoral team. Okay, number eight. Continuing right along, number eight. And here's where I want to just make a minor shift in your document. You've already been struggling just to see it, okay? And now I'm going to change it. I want you to take number 10, and number 10 is going to become number 8. And I do this because of the logical flow, and I didn't change this in time for my beautiful secretary to get that changed around on your document. But I'd like to take number 10 and move it up to number 8, and then we'll go back down. And the reason for that is it sets up well. Coming off of the leadership, we are also equally committed to number 8, which is number 10 on your sheet. We are committed to corporate ministry. Corporate ministry. Now, don't be misled by the word corporate. That simply means collective or, or 
together ministry. All of us are going to take part. We're, we're corporately gathered together for worship, and we believe in corporate ministry. In fact, the blurb kind of explains that to you. Every believer is made for ministry and has a place of service or outreach. Ministry should never be viewed as the job of trained professionals. We've been led down a dangerous path by the term minister. You're a minister. Oh, you must be the minister, Adam Bailey, or it's even worse when they say reverend. Um, I am not the most holy reverend, all right? I'm just an under-shepherd. I'm just Adam, and I am, I am a minister, but I am no less a minister than you are. Have you thought about that? You and I are equally called to minister for Christ. Your role, your responsibilities, your place based upon your gifts and calling is different than mine. And yet we are together to be ministering for the body of Christ. All of us are ministers. Ephesians chapter 2 paints this picture for us just a couple pages back from 1 Peter where you might still be. In Ephesians, we find this picture painted really well. Paul gives this to us. Ephesians chapter 2 talks about us as believers. This is not about pastors. This is not about a special group of people. This is about all of us who are followers of Christ. Verse 10, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That is, we are responsible as God's people. We were saved. We were saved to live out God's grace in our lives. Now, what does that look like when it comes to our general existence in the world? It looks like evangelism. You were saved for the sake of living the gospel and speaking the gospel to those that are not followers of Christ. And within the body of Christ, you were saved for the sake of working out those gifts from God Gracious gifts to you for the sake of building up the body. You see, I'm not, I'm not convinced. That doesn't do it for me? Good. Well, that's good because chapter 4 is still here in Ephesians, at least in my Bible. And in verse 11, it describes to us the big picture of what's happening in the church. Notice this description in verse 11 of chapter 4. And he gave the apostles, these are the foundational components of the church, the apostles who were the twelve men who had seen Christ, and the Apostle Paul, the Apostle out of time, he called himself, the Apostles, the prophets, those who communicated the revelation directly from God, that now we have completed in His Word. We have the Apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, those who were particularly skilled and are particularly skilled to take the Gospel message to people. There is a grouping of people that have a special a special enablement for evangelism. And you probably have met those people. Maybe you've housed them. They're called missionaries often. They're called church planners often. Those who would go, establish the work, leave and establish another work. We have shepherds and teachers, that is pastor teachers. And here is the amazing reality of why those offices existed and why they exist today. Verse 12. Pastors and teachers exist today for this purpose, to equip the saints, notice the next phrase, for the work of ministry. Folks, we are committed at Grace Church 
to you being ministers of God. Corporate ministry. No one's off the hook. There are there is not an understanding that trained professionals need to do the ministry. The trained professionals, which I can't stand the idea of being professional, we are servants of Christ who have been called to a leadership role for the equipping of God's people to continue to serve God's people. That's the process that's given to us in Ephesians chapter 4. And that is our commitment to ministry as a corporate body. Pastors are to be equippers for the sake of the work of the ministry. Okay? While there is not a corporate leadership, which is a congregational structure, there is undoubted corporate ministry in the church. Each of the members of Grace Church is responsible to utilize their gifts from the Spirit for this local church's development and growth. Number nine. Moving quickly, number nine, we are committed to authenticity and accountability. We are committed, which is, this is number eight on your sheet, to authenticity and accountability. Now read along with me if you can see it. Read this blurb with me. Believers must go beyond superficial relationships and be committed to intimacy in each other's lives, continually stirring up one another to love God and love others. The church must minister, same idea, to both the physical and spiritual needs of the body. Selfless, sacrificial love is the defining mark of Christ's disciples. And the continual requirement for flawed humans to work together demands a sacrificial giving of oneself for another. Now where do we find this idea in our scriptures? Well, it's, it's, it's all over our New Testaments, but let me read just one passage that no doubt is familiar to some of you. In the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews writes for us in verses 24 and 25. Verse 23 commends us to hold fast the confession. Verse 22 commends us to draw near. And then we come to verse 24 and we are to consider. Let us think about, let us dwell on how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting meeting together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We are committed at Grace Church not just to enabling and empowering and equipping you for corporate ministry, but also giving you a proper sense of your responsibility to be accountable and authentic with those who follow Christ and who gather together here in this local expression of His body. You are accountable to the body and you must be authentic with the body. Acts chapter 4 speaks to this same issue in the local church as the example. 1 Corinthians 13 talks about our love for one another. Romans chapter 13 talks about our love for each other. James chapter 5 speaks of our confession of sin to one another. James 5.16 Grace Church will be committed to providing an atmosphere of honesty and love for one another. We will avoid mere form through the pursuit of functioning as a body. Our home Bible groups, our, our grace groups, our small groups are the primary outlet for this critical relationship between the body, the members of the body. Even in teaching, this is a commitment that, um, that we embrace, David and I both, as the primary teachers here. This is a 
part of what drives us, this commitment to accountability and authenticity. In fact, I value a a three-tiered evaluation of my teaching. And I'll just give you a little insight. And if you come up and quiz me on this or tell me that you've evaluated me on this, that'd be fine. Okay? I want to be honest, authentic, and accountable to you as well. In my teaching, I desire three A's. Three A's. Just because I'm weird and alliteration helps me. Okay? Three A's. I want to be accurate with God's Word. I want to be authentic with God's Word. That is, I desire for it to grip my life as much as I desire for it to grip your life. So accurate, authentic, and then appropriate in the way it's taught. I want to actually communicate to you in an appropriate way so that you glean from the text what God intended for you to glean. Those three A's could equally be applied to our relationship to one another. Are we accurate in what we say to one another? Are we bringing God's mind to bear on one another's lives? Are we authentic? Are we actually honest enough to talk about where we are as believers, what our struggles are for the sake of accountability with other Christians? And are we appropriate then in the way that we relate to one another? And Scripture has a lot to say about each of those components. But this much I want you to be aware, we have a, a, a vital commitment to making sure that body life happens here. We don't want you to be pew sitters or theater chair sitters. All right? That's not what we desire for you because that's not what your God desires for you. He desires for His body to inform your thinking, to encourage you, to provoke you. That's prodding like a cattle prod. Other Christians come alongside of you and their love for Christ and their gross grace-motivated spiritual growth, all of that prompts and prods and pushes, and it helps us as we develop. We mature in grace because we're committed to an authentic and accountability-based ministry. And then number 10, the final one, and one that is critical, based upon that authenticity and accountability, we are also and finally committed to church discipline and restoration. We are committed to church discipline, folks. And I know that that's unpopular, but that is a biblical commitment that we cannot avoid. Even though it is unpopular in today's culture, a church family must be committed to following the complete biblical process when a church member is in unrepentant sin. Restoration is the constant goal of church discipline, patiently returning an erring Christian to complete fellowship with God and with the local church. Church members must mourn over sinning brothers and sisters and eagerly forgive with joy at their repentance. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 35 clearly outline for us this process of discipline. 1 Corinthians 5 models it for us. We see it actually happening in the church at Corinth. And Galatians chapter 6 reminds us of the heartbeat of all discipline. It is for the sake of restoring our brothers and sisters. That's why we discipline. What drives us in this commitment? The purity of Christ's church and the credibility of the gospel is what is at stake. Do you get that? When you gather together here, and when we gather together here under the banner of Grace Church of the Valley, we publicly say with with our commitment to this local body, I'm a follower of Christ and this is one expression of His body and I'm committed to that body. I believe the Gospel. I live the Gospel. I speak the Gospel. 
and then to turn and live in unrepentant, unaffected sin. The, the name of God and the name of Christ is at stake with your life and with my life. Therefore, we cannot take lightly. We cannot act as if sin doesn't matter. We can't have a sweep it under the rug mentality. We can't have a peace at all costs mentality. We have to deal with that sin. And as difficult as that is, it is for the sake of the gospel and the credibility of the message of Christ. God takes His name seriously. For it is the holy God of heaven's name. So we as a church must take seriously the name of Christ worn by you who are members of Grace Church. Those who are followers of Christ, discipline is for your restoration. Oftentimes I like to think of sports analogies just because they come natural and they take the least amount of work for me. Okay? If we're a sports team, the name on the back of the jersey is Jesus Christ. So you can't run out on the court and live and play any old way you want to without the ramifications of that name and what it stands for bringing, back, bringing you back and being brought to bear on your activity. If you're here, you're part of our church, you're part of the active membership of our church, which means that you have publicly confessed Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have come under the accountability of our leadership, you have given yourself accountable, you've given yourself to this body, then you cannot and I cannot and we cannot collectively take lightly the fact that we wear the name of Christ publicly as His people. That begs us to address one issue. And that is, it is the purity of the church and the credibility of the gospel that is at stake when we talk about church discipline. That always brings my mind back to the reality that there are some gathered here today that are not that are not a part of Christ's body. I don't mean you haven't joined with this local expression of His body. I mean that there are some of you that discipline from a church would do no good because you were never a part of the family in the first place. And so it is always our desire at these Sunday gatherings, to not assume that we have all gathered in the name of Christ and in a proper relationship with God through Christ, but that there are some here this morning, and I, I can't read your hearts, but there are some who either put on a great show or, or who don't, who don't know Christ, who have never known the forgiveness of a holy God who demands perfect righteousness. They've never known that, and so they bear the weight you bear If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, you bear the guilt of your sin, and rightly so, and you will die for your sin. You will spend an eternity in hell for your sin because a holy God created you and He demands perfection from you. That is bad news. And yet the glorious good news of Jesus Christ is that He came He came and lived that perfect life and died that death and bore the punishment of those who would believe so that you this morning, if you're here and you do not know the forgiveness of God, if you will simply turn from your own way, 
you'll repent. That is, you'll make a 180 degree turn. You'll reject your own wisdom, your own way. You'll place your faith and confidence in Jesus Christ alone. He will save you. He will forgive you. God will set your account according to His life and His righteousness. He will be your substitute. He'll stand in for you. And your benefit will be eternal life in the presence of that Savior. We are committed here at Grace Church to these ten commitments as the pillars of our philosophy. We want to be a gathering of Christ followers that are serious and intentional about all that they do. We want to be committed to God and His authoritative Word. We want to be committed to God-centeredness in our lives even as we gather to worship. We want to be committed to the Gospel of Jesus Christ which we just discussed. And we want to be committed to taking that locally and globally. Individually, you are the missions program of Grace Church of the Valley. Some of you have said, what's the missions program? You're it. I'm it. We're to take the Gospel and share it. This is our heartbeat. We're committed to grace-motivated spiritual growth. We're committed to dependent and expectant prayer, plurality of leaders, servant leaders, that is, a commitment to corporate ministry, to authenticity and accountability, and ultimately, because of that, we are also committed to church discipline and the restoration of sinning brothers and sisters. It's what we are. It's what we stand for. And we look to God for the grace to live out those commitments in a very practical way here at Grace Church. The most practical way that we can live our our faith and our confidence in Jesus Christ is to continually address ourselves in submission to the Word of God. And whether you're here today, you've known Christ for decades, or whether you're here today and you don't know Christ, your responsibility is to bring your life and lay it down before the Word of God and allow its, its power, its message to do its work in you.